Welcome to When Things Go Wrong, a podcast about what happens when things you expect to go just fine simply don't. I'm your host, Frank Sapovitz, and today we're going to meet a man who helps to guide businesses, governments, and individuals when things do go horribly wrong. Richard Levick is the chairman and CEO of Levick, a firm based in Washington, D.C., that has helped more than 300 of the world's largest law firms, hundreds of companies, and over 30 countries identify and prepare for high-profile risks, handle crisis management and communication during challenging times, and embark on a campaign of brand rehabilitation after a crisis has passed. Richard is a frequent television news contributor on crisis and public affairs communications, and he's a globally recognized keynote speaker. He's authored four books, including The Communicators, Leadership in the Age of Crisis, and hosts multiple podcasts, including one of my new favorites, the daily in-house warrior podcast. And in his spare time, and there's not much of that, as you can imagine, he is a professor at the Fordham and Wake Forest schools of law. Here's my conversation with Richard Levick. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, Richard, to when... I'm going to do that again, Richard. Welcome, Richard, to When Things Go Wrong. Uh, Frank, you know, what's so nice is that the introduction should end with something going wrong. So I think it was intentional, and I'm delighted to be here. <laughs> Let's leave it in there, then. We won't even edit it out. So, Richard, your brand trademark for the company is fixing the impossible. Give us an introduction to Levick and what kinds of impossible situations you help to fix. Well, first of all, Frank, thanks so much. And I, sh I should say, you know, about you and the work that you've done, and you were just a guest on one of my podcasts, and I I'm such a fan of yours and, and the work that you've done and the work you do uh, that I'm just absolutely delighted to be here. So, in, you know, in terms of fixing the impossible, I would, you know, I would start with this. You know, Einstein once said that he had maybe two original ideas in his life. And I'm presuming he's talking about his two theories of relativity. But you think back, and what that really means is that a lot of us are just sort of going along, right? We, we form our opinions based on emotion and not on fact. And, you know, I'm in Washington, D.C., where we have an old saying that, uh, why kick a man while he's up? It's too much work. You wait till <laughs> he's down. And, you know, everyone sort of piles on. And we see that. We see that the journalist, and I am a huge fan, you know, we do a lot of pro bono work on behalf of uh, journalists who are detained, captured in foreign countries. Uh, and so, and I've always been, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, my teaching at Fordham Law. Uh, I, you know, the First Amendment has always been a hegemonic right. It's so critically important. But having said that, because of the rush 
to get news in first. You know, you still see today, which is remarkable to me, the exclusive. I don't know what that means in an age when we don't have two nice news cycles, but 1,660 every minute. What is possibly an exclusive? What, that you got it, you know, NBC got it 15 seconds before ABC or before Fox? That's that's not an exclusive. And the reason I'm starting there is because in the rush, there are two competing demands of journalists. Get it right and get it first. And getting it first often sacrifices getting it right. And one of the things that we see on those early stories, and I know we're going to get into them in some specific examples, will be that journalists are often looking or the people they interview are looking to point fingers at who's at fault. You know, Frank, that we just handled the tragedy, the Champlain uh, South Towers in Miami. And if you look at the stories in the first three, four days, they were all about pointing fingers. Now, they're still pointing fingers, but they're pointing them at different people now. When you know we handled probably the singularly most unpopular issue in the last 50 years, which are the detainee rights at Guantanamo right after 9-11, the worst tragedy in the United States since Pearl Harbor and Antietam, you know, a century and a half apart, and a, a remarkably horrific moment in this country. And there was this demand and desire to blame. And so people were blaming anyone, anyone who looked Arab. And it meant that even our Arab allies were suddenly being caught up in the dragnet. And you had hundreds of people at Guantanamo, most of whom, many of whom would end up being released. And we were representing the detainees, the original detainees who were from Kuwait. Uh, a lot of them would, you know, would be from Saudi Arabia and other countries as well. Uh, and it would turn out that 12 of the 13 would be innocent. They would be rendered one uh, still has yet to go to trial. Um, but I, the justice is much slower than media. And fixing the impossible, imagine a more hostile and understandably so hostile and unpopular issue than the detainees at Guantanamo after 9-11 when everyone is feeling this pain. So being able to get 98 of the nation's 100 daily, major daily newspapers to editorialize on behalf of the issue of due process, to change the subject from just revenge to due process, uh, to be able to get people to say, wait a minute, you know, we're all, you know, I think the same is true about democracy as is true of capitalism. That is, when the markets are all going north, we're all capitalists. But when things are going south, suddenly we're all socialists. And the same is true uh, with the Constitution. As long as you're espousing something I believe, I believe in the First Amendment. I believe in due process. I believe in the right of privacy. But wait a minute. If you're doing something that I don't like or I, I don't like the sound of, well, maybe I don't believe in the Constitution anymore. Our job is to make sure that in these highly public, highly complex issues, that the Constitution has a chance to work. Well, you are talking about problems when they happen, right? After they've happened. So do you get, do you get most of your inbound calls when a company, a leader, a government, uh, an organization is in the heat of crisis or when it's about to become public? or when the problem is already out there, or do you ever get calls from companies to help prepare for a potential crisis before it hits the fan? My, when my phone rings, and it rings at all hours, of course, because we do work all over the world, it's almost never from Ed McMahon. 
you know, you may have already won. Right. I, you know, I just know that's not going to happen. That, uh, you know, I may, I should say as an aside, one of the things that troubles me a little bit about this generation, which says, you know, I want balance and work, but I also want the excitement of a crisis firm. I'm like, well, you know, the weekends in the Middle East um, are different. Thursday's their day off, you know, not Saturday and Sunday. And the middle of their work day is the middle of our night. But to directly answer your question, most of the time, it's after the uh, the proverbial un, uh, unmentionable has hit the fan and that people are in trouble. We get the call after the helicopter has crashed in the middle of the night. Uh, you know, we got the call on 9-11 with the American Airlines plane into the Pentagon, that, that horrific tragedy. Uh, it is, uh, you know, and sometimes what we're dealing with uh, is it's not unusual to suddenly get a call and you have to fly to another country. Um, you know, with the Gulf oil spill, which we handled representing a Japanese conglomerate that no one remembers was, was involved there because everyone views it as the BP oil spill. And they were not a majority holder, but they were one of the four significant players, one of the five significant players. And, uh, you know, I had just flown in from Ho Chi Minh uh, doing some work there on anti-corruption uh, I'm in New York for a speech and thinking, wow, I can, you know, the speech is done. I just flew in, did the speech. And I'm in my hotel room. I can relax. And the phone rings and it's a lawyer I didn't know at the time. Um, can you be in Houston tomorrow morning? It's already like five o'clock at night, six o'clock at night. Can you be in Houston tomorrow morning? Um, we want to hire a firm on the uh, Gulf oil spill. And it, it wasn't yet known. This was day two. It wasn't yet known as the BP Gulf oil spill. And, you know, I had a team, of course, you can see why I'm loved because I had our team work all throughout the night to do the media analysis. Um, and when I arrived in Houston the next morning, along with an email, which was about 70 pages of digital analysis of all the coverage and, you know, go to the, I don't know what it, time it was, four or five in the morning, go to the business office in the hotel, print out, you know, these 75, 77 page documents. So that when we met with, and it was, they already had a war room set up uh, so that uh, I could point out all the trends in media coverage and what was likely to happen and therefore what their strategy should be. Uh, but, you know, there, that call comes after the 11 fatalities. It comes after the explosion. Yes, we are the preferred or exclusive provider for 12 of the world's largest insurance companies. That's, a, you know, the, the anticipation is a lot of that is for prophylactic purposes, but most of the time, almost always, it's after the dam has broken. So you're the person to call when it hits the fan and, and the crisis is unfolding. And as you suggested from your travel itinerary, uh, time is of the essence, but it's, it's at least as important to have the best response rather than just the fastest response. It's better to be fast and right, but it's, it's important to be right. Or what I call responding rather than reacting. How, how do you navigate that tension between speed and, and effectiveness? Well, it's a great question. And you're right. At the end of the day, you know, even if you look at something like Penn state uh, 15 years ago, the Joe Paterno uh, related crisis that, that was only at most seven news cycles and uh, seven time zones, pardon me. And by, by that, I mean, you know, maybe um, you had Puerto Rico interested, maybe you had the Alaskan 
publications and media interested in, but it was pretty much a North American crisis. When you're dealing with the Gulf oil spill, when you're dealing with AIG, when you're dealing with some of these, you know, the Qatar, Saudi uh, blockade, you're talking about 24-7, seven-day-a-week, multi-month crises. So I think in the beginning, when you're drinking from a fire hose, you have to you have to be able to immediately act like Raider O'Reilly and MASH here, the helicopters, before anyone else does. You have to be able to read the tea leaves, trust your instincts based on your experience. Uh, you know, through about the Korean War, the U.S. military had about a 50% effectiveness rate through all their training. That would mean, despite all the best military training in the world, in the first firefight, when in a foxhole, uh, soldiers would only fire 50%, only 50% of the soldiers would fire. Now, they've improved that radically over the last half century, but that same is true for crises and for CEOs. Most CEOs are hired because their monetizing ability. Can you get this company to be more profitable, higher revenue, increase the share price? And then a really uh, informed board says, oh, by the way, can you handle crisis? And he or she says, yes. And they're Phew, glad we asked that and move on. Yeah, we so checked the box. We checked the box. and. Yeah. You know, like just like alcohol, a crisis tells you what a real person's personality is. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Crisis tells you what people are really made of. And we've seen great leadership and we've seen not so great leadership. Uh, and just because, you know, just because a crisis doesn't turn out well, doesn't mean that there wasn't some great leadership somewhere. It's just that if an organization is broken, it doesn't allow great leaders to lead when they need to most. So how do you, how do you deal with that? First of all, you have to earn trust very quickly. You have to let people know that you've, you've, you've done a few rodeos before you've seen worse. And you know, we, we, the firm and I personally have been in lots of situations, war torn, uh, areas in the middle East, uh, under armed guard, uh, recipient of death threats, having to have our own security system, the recipient of secret information, you know, just like, uh, James Bond, you know, where you get photographs provided to you inside of newspapers, you know, at a drop off. So all this sort of, uh, pretty, uh, you know, interesting, I mean, uh, you can probably hear my Buddhism coming out, like what Whatever will be, will be, right? But, you know, you just go into these situations and, you know, Yemen right before the fall, but, you know, you've got to be there. And my, my belief always is never send anyone anywhere where I wouldn't go uh, first. Um, and, uh, but, but you have to earn their trust. That's critical. And when you earn their trust, then you can begin to do the triage. So I mentioned the Champlain Towers, and that's still going on. So, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm deliberately not sharing a lot of information. But the very first thing, there were hundreds and hundreds of journalist queries coming in those first hours and days every day. So the first issue was, let's manage that. The second, and a lot of this is being done simultaneously, there was no time because you're working 24 seven. There's no time to build a website page, even though 
you should and, and would. There was no time to uh, build out a timeline, a chronology, which is really, it's a tool that's not often used. Um, I think we'll get to Michigan State in a little bit, their great tragedy over there, the Larry Nasser tragedy. Um, and uh, they obviously didn't build a timeline. They would have solved that problem 14 years earlier had they. What a, what a horrific tragedy. But there's no time to do that sometimes. So you just decide, okay, these are best practices, but this is what we need to do. And once the first day or two starts working the way you say it will, your clients start to trust you more and let you do more things. But you are running the 100-yard dash and the marathon at the same time. And let me say this, that when I say 24-7, that's almost literally true. During AIG, we work seven days a week, 20-hour days, 18, 19-hour days for seven months. I got, you know, I got to go home once, supposed to be able to go home for two days, and I was home for a couple hours, and the phone rang, and I, and I was on the 3 I'm trained back to New York to be there for a 7.30 a.m. Sunday morning meeting. You just have to do that. You have to be able to work those really long hours. And one of the reasons is because the world's journalists largely slow down in the evenings or on the weekends, whatever they may be for those journalists. And that allows you the time to start drafting more messages, getting the Q&As down, building the chronology, setting up the, uh, the website. So it, it's a balance of both. And then the last thing I'll say is that sometimes when you're dealing with crises, particularly when either liberty, liberty or life are at issue, that tempers can be really short. People can be really afraid. And the most important thing you can do at that moment is to be both authoritarian in terms of these are the things we need to do to be certain, but also really calm and reassuring. Exigency of each situation dictates what's going to happen next. I cannot pretend that I'm old enough to have experienced everything. I've done this for 40 years. I've got a pretty good understanding. I trust my gut because I you know, a lot of times you're asking yourself the question, well, do we, do we take the lead in this? Is there somebody else we can stand behind like BP in the Gulf oil spill? Um, do um, we start putting out information every day or do we just put out a very brief statement and, uh, you know, and then that's it. Do we do some sort of press conference? Are we looking for allies? What do we do about uh, video? How do we deal with police or law enforcement? And you, you know, it's, I, I know there's an old saying, uh, NSA, never sell alone. As good as you get at this, you're going on instinct because you're operating at the speed of light and you, your instincts will tell you a lot of things. Your experience will tell you a lot of things, but it's really good to have other people who, you know, respect, trust, and honor you as you do them. And they will tell, they will speak truth to power. And if they think you're wrong on a strategy, they'll say, Richard, you know, let's zig instead of zag. Yeah. Well, they have to be empowered to be able to do that. And, and you talked about gut and, and I know from my own research, uh, that when you, when people of a particular point in their career are dealing with gut instinct it really is, it's really the echoes of an enormous amount of experience with similar things. You, you may not even know that they are based on experience, but they are. I think it's a great point, Frank. And, uh, you know, I remember 
Well, first of all, and we all need to know this. And people ask me a lot, you know, well, how do you prepare for crisis communications? And I said, well, you know, being a parent, everything you ever learned about uh, from being a spouse or a parent, uh, you're going to, you know, learn crisis communications. Like your child makes a really big mistake. What's the first thing you say? Apologize and don't do it again. Okay. It's a lesson that a lot of CEOs should take to heart. And usually, you know, we're seeing more of that, but, uh, you know, there's this whole sorry works uh, movement uh, because a lot of hospitals don't do that. And they've learned actually by apologizing, their liability goes down exactly contrary to what uh, the lawyers will tell them. But that's, you know, a whole nother uh, theme here. I think that instinct think about this when you were in high school or college or whenever and you're dating and that you know your your libido or your ego or your eyes or your heart say yes 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 and that little voice in your head is saying red flag i don't think so that little voice that you tamp down that's the voice of truth that is your subconscious talking to you and it knows before we can articulate why. We're always looking to understand the logic, but instinct, emotion, uh, the history of our experience, that's that's not logic. That's a body of information. And you, you need to listen to that. And the same is true in business. I, I get asked all the time, you know, I'm on the spot. What do you think? What should we do? That uh, sometimes I know absolutely with certainty the right answer. And if I don't know the answer, I'll, I'll clearly say we need more information. But most of the time, it's either I know the answer or my instinct says, okay, this is what we need to do. And, but, you know, and, and for all of the young people listening, you need decades in the field before you have the instincts. We have someone on our staff who's late 20s, early 30s. He's one of the few people I've ever met that young who has got that kind of experience and instinct. And he directs and handles some of the highest profile matters for us. But it's still taken 10 years, you know, and that's, you know, that's, that's a heartbeat. Um, one of the things I would suggest, though, is that, you know, we are consumers of news. But we need to look at it. And when we're reading something, when we're watching something saying, well, if I were representing them, you know, if I were representing the NFL when the lights went out, not, you know, most people say, well, gee, how did that happen? You know, because Frank backed into the light switch. We all That's, know. Everybody <laughs> knows that by right. now. Said. But instead, <laughs> ask yourself, how would I handle this? And I've got less than 10 minutes to figure it out. And unfortunately, what happens in the morning papers, to the extent that there's, you know, I'm using it a euphemism. People read the morning papers as if Everyone in those stories knew all the facts at the time. We're all sitting around a room, all talking in real time at the same time, not realizing that journalists are already putting stories to bed when they call people for interviews. Uh, they may already have somewhat of a point of view. And again, I'm not talking about unfairness, but, you know, Frank, if, if a reporter talks to you, talks to your engineer, Mandy, and then they talk to me and the two of you say, you know, Richard's not a very nice guy, that may be accurate. But what will end up happening is by the time they talk to me, they think he's probably not a very nice guy. It's just, you know, it's human nature. So it's a real, uh, you know, it's a real challenge. And, you know, you asked the question about dealing with things all at once. Looking at stories and being able to tell a client, that's a one or two day news story. Or, but unless, unless you make, you know, unless you make this error, 
this can go away, but you need to be able to live with a couple of bad days of news um, or this is going to go on. I, I, I want to touch on something that, that you just mentioned, because I, I think it's important. And that is that communications are happening with you or without you. They're, they're happening already. You said the journalist is already putting a story to bed before they've called you. So when something happens and you're aware that something happens, whether you're communicating or not, other people are. History is written whether we participate or not. And the question in this life is, do you want to be a spectator or do you want to be a protagonist to your own life? Now, having said that, you have to make a decision on a case-by-case basis. There are days when it makes a lot more sense to suck all the oxygen out of the room and let the one-day or two-day stores, which says critical things about you, say them and move on. Now, you know, the stock market, which W.C. Fields thought was an enormous scam, um, it's amazing how fast it bounces back from companies that were in trouble. I happen to be a firm believer that, one, we are not in the business of spin. I never used that term. I've never used that term. And you don't come to us to spin. You come to us to help fix a situation, make it right. And if that means our stock price has to take a hit for a couple of days, I guarantee you, you do it right. And what will happen is uh, it will bounce back. I mean, look at, if you look at cyber, and we handle uh, hundreds of cyber matters a year, you look at cyber, Heartland was the first major cyber breach, one of the uh, first. There were a couple others before that weren't particularly well handled. But cyber, but uh, Heartland comes along, it's a banking system, and they called all, I think it was 150,000 of their customers in a week. And they were all about fixing it. And what happened was the stock market, the stock price bounced back and exceeded the pre-breach uh, value uh, all within a week. And that happened because I think there was great leadership. I think the failure at AIG was Ed Liddy, who was the acting CEO, an American patriot coming in for $1, was a great leader, but not but had his hands tied by people within the organization and not permitted to lead. Martha Stewart should have gotten out of her situation much, much faster um, than uh, she did. But there was a situation where she wanted to win it all. Um, and, you know, uh, hence orange is the new black. She got to, you know, I think she had a purse to match that electronic bracelet, which is why I think that she was so intent on handling it wrong. You know, Michigan State, I mentioned before, and we were actually on that case um, uh, last night in my law class. And, uh, you know, it's a tragic, tragic case. That's where Larry Nasser was working as a uh, physician for the athletic teams and particularly the gymnastics teams while he was working for the United States Olympic Committee and the gymnastics team. And, you know, again, that was the institution winning over what was right. It was a complete tragic absence of leadership. And what some of these things have in common is they're not bad people. They're not bad people, but they make terrible and tragic uh, mistakes. Well, the, the not bad people were the people who were handling the crisis, not necessarily the people who caused the crisis. So, uh, Larry, Larry I, Nasser. I, I, at least I feel that L- way. Larry Nasser. <laughs> 
Absolutely. I'm, I'm glad you made that clarification. It's, you know, I'm thinking of the university president. I'm thinking of the gymnastics coach who was yes. told by gymnast. And up until days before Larry Nasser was removed initially from his uh, medical duties and then from, you know, a week later from all duties, she was still defending him. Um, but for the people who did nothing, you know, who put the institution first, it's remarkable. As if looking at the, the Penn State uh, crisis and not learning anything from that is, you know, it's it's beyond remarkable. And quite frankly, Maryland, one of the universities where I have a degree, uh, it, uh, it handled the death of a young football player a couple of years ago horribly and i mean all the way that it ended up taking a president's shortening a president's career and you know the board is the one who's responsible and for mishandling that along with the athletic department but the president became the sacrifice and that's another truth of crisis communications the gods of uh, crisis demand a sacrifice but you get to decide what that sacrifice is you know unless you mishandle it and then the marketplace decides Right. And, and one thing you never sacrifice is your own authenticity and your own truth, clearly. It is. You know, here's the challenge. Once, you know, you, some people sometimes ask, well, how do, uh, how do good people make bad decisions? Here's, here's what happens. We have to hold on. We have to maintain our North Star. And this has happened to all of us. And it's why the Bible both the Old and New Testaments are bestsellers. It's why there's nothing new since Shakespeare and Freud. We are, we can keep on the straight and narrow unless we don't. And then once we lose our way, even by an inch, it gets harder and harder and harder. And that's the same conversation that takes place in a lot of these organizations. Well, I thought something wrong was happening at Michigan State or at Michigan, but I decided not to ask, or I decided not to believe a complaint, or I decided not to mention it to anybody else. And then a year or two later, when it becomes clear that's, that's, that there's some fire with that smoke, then Rather than thinking in local parentis, our job is to protect the students, our job is to protect the employees, our job is to protect the stockholders or whatever, it becomes, how do I protect my own reputation for mishandling these fractions when they first came to my attention? And that's why it's so important that we hold on to our North Star. You know, the, the Buddhists talk about uh, and, and the Talmud talks about this as well, living in every moment, living in the present. And here's a key question. I, you know, this is very tactical, but I said a chronology is really important. If you look at Michigan State, and it's just fresh in my mind, and we did not handle Michigan State, uh, by the way, um, but you can see patterns. And if you had done the chronology, you would see, and you have to draw it out, not as a Word document, but draw it out as a calendar so you can see it, at like an infographic. And... Um, it becomes obvious uh, something really terrible is going on. And to your earlier point, yeah, Larry Nasser's behavior, I mean, including with girls as young as six, is just is beyond egregious and turns my stomach every time I read or think about it. Well, it's, it's listening to that inner voice again, right? You were talking about that in terms of instinct, but it's also in terms of input. Now, I want to get to something that, that, is quoted on your website, which I think is... Uh, wait, the show's over. I'm done. If you're going to hold me responsible for what I've said... Oh, no. I, I really... I think it's a it's an, a remarkably intriguing uh, oh, then I'll take credit. sentence. Okay. It says, a good crisis should never be wasted. What, what, does, what does that mean? 
you know, I'm not sure if I, my guess is that's probably not our original statement. A lot, obviously, I write, as you know, uh, written a bunch of books, co-authored yes. books, and write uh, you know an article every month, every week. Pardon me. So I write a lot, a lot of eBooks. But I'm not sure if we wrote that or if somebody else did. So I don't want to take credit for it. But the, the, the truth is, you know, when I said this uh, on Wall Street, as tragic as the, the, the events of 2008, 2009 were financially devastating, they didn't last long enough for many of the banks to learn their lesson. And then, you know, flash forward six years, Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo, which was largely untouched, one of the few national banks major banks untouched by the financial crisis. And what do they do with their credit card scam, but step right into it? And Wells Fargo wasn't scorched by 2008, 2009, because they are, quote, the people's bank. And I don't mean to be picking on the bankers, because we've certainly represented any number of them. I'm only saying that there is, whether it's in our personal lives, and I've suffered some horrific setbacks in my life, the reason why we go through these horrible experiences is we have to learn something. What's the takeaway? What, how are we becoming a better person? And our mistakes are not permanent. Our failures do not brand us unless we choose for that to happen. And so from a crisis, one of the things we often suggest in a crisis, and you know, I mentioned the, the, the importance of doing a chronology, you look at future events, and a lot of times there's paralysis by analysis. You can't get people to do the courageous, heroic things in a crisis, to apologize, to withdraw the product, to fire someone, to, uh, to uh, quit a division or whatever it is, not to pay bonuses in the AIG case. Right? And what you do is you say, okay, I understand. And they won't tell you why they're afraid. They won't tell you what they're hiding. And what you do is you look at them and you say, you know, I appreciate and I'm honored to work with you. And I know how difficult this is because we've dealt with so many other situations, some, believe it or not, considerably worse than this. You haven't, uh, you know, you, you haven't told me, nor have I asked for everything or to understand everything. But I know you're looking at this crisis, this tsunami, as from today. And you're saying wow, I don't want to be fully transparent or I don't want to apologize or I don't want to switch directions now. But let's look at this in the future. Here's what's going to happen. There's going to be litigation and therefore discovery. So whatever you think is not going to come out is going to come out. Social media critics are going to come on. Washington's going to hop on this and there's going to be regulatory hearings and they're going to be televised. And then your lawyers are going to tell you that you can't say things in your defense because it would hurt your legal defense later. So all those things are going to happen. Do you still not want to be transparent? Do you still not want to uh, make the sacrifice now? And, you know, the Marines have a saying, better to lose an arm in a knife fight than your life. Pay the sacrifice and move on. I, I'd love to get your sense of the, the challenges that corporations have had to navigate with respect to the political and social divides that have obviously been around for a very long time in our country and, and globally, but, but we're obviously magnified to an even greater extent when the pandemic was in full swing. And, and perhaps the most public was Nike's collaboration with Colin Kaepernick as a brand ambassador in 2018. 
Now they took some PR hits, but but they also burnished their image in some market segments. So tell tell us about your opinion of that partnership. Was was Nike facing a crisis? Was Colin fa- facing a crisis? Great question. And it's a remarkable case study um, for so many reasons. As you know, Nike was considering, you know, do we embrace Colin Kaepernick or do we embrace Richard Levick as our, you know, athlete of choice? Um, I don't know how I lost out to Colin. <laughs> the fact that at this age, I can't throw a football more than about 10 yards probably had something to do with it. But um I'm the only one who's ever had the 40 timed in minutes, just so you, you, you know. <laughs> um, but, you know, here's what's fascinating. Think about this for a moment. Nike embraces Colin Kaepernick, who is at this point blacklisted and therefore unemployable in the NFL. At that point, he had not worked for, was it three or four years in the NFL? The NFL, along with the premiership in England, are the two most powerful, wealthiest uh, brands, sports brands in the world. And Nike decides to take them on, one of their biggest clients, to take them on. Now, would anyone, they didn't, they didn't, this was not a crisis that Nike accidentally got into. This is walking to the propeller blade. It is doing it deliberately, but they did it brilliantly. And think about, first of all, Nike has a history of this. This wasn't the first time. They were the first to reach out and embrace LGBTQ athletes, the first to embrace African, you know, one of the first to embrace African-American athletes, disabled athletes as primary spokes uh, people, women's uh, athletics. You know, I mean, Title IX is only, what, uh, 1971, 1972, so it's only 50 years old. And you, you know, so they've had this history of being on the cutting edge. That's part of their brand. And I would suggest to your listeners, you know, if you, for those of you in companies and you're wondering how to navigate the future, one of the first things to do is read Simon Sinek's book, Start With a Why. Why are you in business? Nike, Apple, um, uh, Starbucks, uh, they understand why they're in business. You know, Michelin, Michelin isn't selling tires, they're selling safety. Starbucks isn't selling coffee, they're selling an experience. Apple isn't selling a computer, they're selling a religion. They know exactly what they are and who they are. And this is true about Nike. They're one of the few companies that's reached a theological level with its tribe. I know tribe is a word that a lot of people don't need, don't want to use anymore, but it's so important and it's so true. They understand their customers as tribes. Next, they believed in the future. They were not concerned about the short term. Every company is concerned, other than, you know, Chinese companies plan in 50 and 100 years. We're looking at, you know, 30-day cycles and, and even, you know, 90-day cycles and most companies even less, right? What are they looking at American companies? Oh, my God, how are we going to get through this week? Well, Nike knew that they were going to take some hits, but they also knew where the market was going. They were Wayne Gretzky. Don't skate to where the puck is, skate to where it's going. And they decided, we know that the urban athlete, we know that the black athlete, that people of color, those are going to be increasingly, they are and going to increasingly be our customer base. We're moving to a leadership position and we are not going to be Johnny come lately. And they embraced Colin Kaepernick and what happened? One, the share price went down initially, lots of protest people uh, burning Nike shoes. They, what did they do? Nothing. You know what Lyndon Baines Johnson used to say to uh, Secretary Dulles? 
don't just do something, stand there. They knew enough mm-hmm. to do nothing and just stand there and wait because they believed in Colin Kaepernick. They believed in the cause. They believed in their customers. They believed in their brand and they believed where the market was going. For companies not in Nike's position, understand that that calls for boycotts don't usually work. And I, you know, I grew up in Washington. I grew up in a very political environment in the shadow of the dome. I remember the first great uh, boycott in the late 60s and early 70s, the first uh, lettuce uh, boycott, Cesar Chavez. And these were the only boycotts in town. Of course they worked. They went viral before there was such thing, such a thing as going viral. Now there's a call for a boycott, probably seven during the show, right? I mean, there's calls for boycotts all the time because everyone's got a megaphone now. Largely ignore them. And then something that's anecdotal that I, uh, I've only seen some evidence on, not enough to say this is a fact for sure, but to the extent that boycotts have any impact at all, it seems that boycotts from the left tend to be slightly more powerful than boycotts on the right, but neither tend to be very powerful. So most of the time you can ignore them, but you need to study the analytics to make sure that you can. You need to know where you're going. And all rules have their exceptions. And again, start with a why. Richard, I could talk to you all day. It's just been a fascinating conversation and and you're just an amazing thought leader. You're at the helm of a, an equally fascinating company and and just, you know, brilliant analysis on just about anything. I you can learn more about Richard's company by visiting levick.com. That's l e v i c k.com and you can find his podcasts including in-house warrior on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you get your shows you can even get to it by visiting uh, levick.com so and and by the way you can even find a recent episode with yours truly talking about what to do when things go wrong learn more about how to plan for and survive the inevitable blips bloopers and blunders of life and business in what to do when things go wrong Available in hard copy, ebook, and audiobook from Amazon.com and other fine booksellers. I'm Frank Sapovitz, and remember if it hasn't happened to you, it just hasn't happened to you yet. The When Things Go Wrong podcast is produced by Chris and Mandy Wimmer and is a production of Black Barrel Media in association with Fast Traffic Entertainment. You can find more Black Barrel Media shows on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. For more background on this show, join us at Black Barrel Media on Facebook and Instagram, at B Barrel Media on Twitter, and on our website at blackbarrelmedia.com. See you next time, if all goes well.